Welcome to the Do Business Better podcast, the place for ideas you can implement to achieve prosperity. You'll get insights from successful business people on how they do business better. You'll glean tactics on creating a life and business by choice because we interview real business people who've done just that. Now here's your host, Damian Mason. Well, greetings and welcome to the Do Business Better podcast, where we talk to real live entrepreneurs about entrepreneurial stuff. We help you glean lessons that you can apply to your own business to create a life and business by choice. Got Paul Gamble on here. He's the co-founder and CEO of Nori. Nori is a carbon removal marketplace. Um, You're maybe not familiar with this, but maybe you are. I have a business of agriculture podcast that releases every Monday and Nori is a sponsor of it. And I said, I like your story. I like what you're doing there. I want you to come on and talk about the business side of being a startup in this new space. So he's going to tell us all about being a startup. He's going to talk about everything from venture capital to ideas, to hiring people, to what problems he seeks to solve and what problems he has has encountered to create his business. We're going to cover all that and more here in the Do Business Better podcast. And I also would encourage you, dear listener, that this is a video as well as an audio. So go check out the Damian Mason channel. Just go on YouTube and type in Damian Mason channel. Hit subscribe. It doesn't cost anything. And you can see all my great stuff, commentary, ag stuff. You can even go back and find some of my old comedy bits from when I, when I was a political comedian. Anyway, thanks for being here. Paul Gamble, um, Nor- I didn't know you. I didn't know you had that. Uh, I, I will look that up afterwards. Oh, my. Well, you see, we're just getting to know each other. But anyway, you yeah. are a sponsor. Um, anybody listening to this probably knows that I spend a lot of my uh, my time in the ag space. Um, and I started this uh, podcast uh, several years ago to accompany my business book, Do Business Better, and to make sure that we we're always talking about small biz. I've been self-employed for 28. I'm starting my 29th year here this summer. Quit my job in corporate America in 1994 to pursue a career in comedy. And we can talk about more of that later. But um, so I've been there. I've been the 25-year-old kid uh, still paying off my student loans and my debt from Purdue University. And uh, I said, you know what? I'm not going to be doing this corporate thing. I think I got a chance here to make something. And then I built my comedy thing into sort of an enterprise, you know, from farm ownership to some real estate to some other business ventures that I've involved myself in over the years. And I always love to talk to people that had the balls and the backbone to start their thing. And sometimes we always get caught up like, oh, Elon Musk. Well, listen, man, that's one that's 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 one extreme of this. There's a whole bunch of people out here that are in starting companies that a lot of people never heard of, but they're doing amazing things. And I think you're one of those examples. So kind of start me out here. Nori, what is it? We are on a mission to reverse climate change. And uh, for me, this started back in 2015. I was working in software consulting. I was a product manager. I live in Seattle and I've, I've been here since grad school. And I was bored of the consulting work I was doing. And I wanted to work on something that was more important and fulfilling. And what happened was I read this magazine article about how climate scientists were becoming very depressed because no one was listening to them. And I thought, well, I mean, that sucks. Uh, We should maybe do something about that. And uh, it seemed to me like surely there is some sort of business model possible to solve this in more of like a market oriented way. Um, It's just, it seems obvious and intuitive to me that uh, policymakers are not coming to the rescue, are not going to be um, leading the charge on actually fixing anything here. And so we have to develop ways so that 
uh, incentives align with uh, producing the outcome that we want to see. And what is that outcome? Well, it, as I started researching it, it seemed kind of obvious to me that climate change is being caused by too many greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And therefore, the solution is just pull those gases back out. And in 2015, I started researching this. I was wondering, like, why can't I find anything about this? Why isn't anyone working on it? Um, this, this should be the main thing. And it wasn't. I started a meetup group in Seattle to find other people who were interested in that. And then we very quickly met every other group in the world who was doing this because there were four. It was, there were like research centers at uh, universities. Um, and over the next year or two, uh, we did a lot of self-education and research. And what we were finding was, oh, it turns out there are actually plenty of ways you can pull carbon out of the air, most especially by storing it in soils. And, and it has all these other benefits. And we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about that. Mm -hmm. um, but if, it, if there are all these ways you can do it today and it's not happening at any scale, then to me, that speaks to a lack of incentives for that. And so if we're missing that incentive, uh, then we should create that for them somehow. And so that eventually led to what ended up becoming Nori. We were founded in 2017 and we're a marketplace for people who remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and sequester it to then sell those uh, you know, most people know them as carbon offsets. We call them carbon removals to sell those carbon removals to buyers, uh, mainly companies who are trying to be carbon neutral or even carbon negative um, because they're being pushed by their consumers, by their employees or shareholders or whoever to uh, build more sustainable brands. That's like the uh, very big cultural movement that is happening right now. So that's what Nori is. We connect the suppliers of carbon removal with the buyers. Yeah, and, and um, uh, lots of stuff there to cover, uh, Paul. So a couple of things. Uh, I read an article. This, you know, we're, we're going to talk about the actual business that you do and, and running it, but about the topic about a week or two ago. Uh, pretty well done article because it didn't get into the whole uh, you're evil because you eat meat and you're destroying mm -hmm. the planet because you drive a car. But got away from all that bullshit and just basically yeah. talked about the economics of it. And, and it was mm -hmm. written by a smart capitalist minded human behavior understanding economist. The point was, okay, if we really are going to accept that, um, that humans activities um, is uh, causing some damage to our planet, mm -hmm. um, the answer is then to go ahead and change that. But the problem is humans are not wired to make big sacrifices today for something right. that they will not be able to not only, you know, it's the whole thing is the old study that the, some kids, you put a cookie in front of them and say, if you don't eat this cookie, we'll bring you a jar of cookies in one hour. Right. And some kids, the marshmallow they, test. Yeah. Which, by the way, there's a flawed study. If you read about right. it, <laughs> yes. either way, um, yeah. it's a flawed study. And it tried to predict human behavior that some people are going to be savers and some people are going to blow their money, whatever. But the point is there is that real thing that there's people that right now say, I ain't going to save my money. I'm going to blow it. And that's why they've got credit problems, et cetera. And there's people say, I'm going to save for, you know, rainy day retirement, whatever. Well, that's even hard for humans to get their hands around saving for 30 years from now. Imagine say making sacrifices today that you're not going to see your kid ain't going to see. Maybe your grandkids going to see it becomes too arbitrary and too yeah. just absolutely like, what the hell do I care? There's a bunch of human behavior. And so that's really one of the problems. Right. This guy was just saying there needs to be an economic incentive now 
for people to yes. change behavior. And that's the point is they taught me in agricultural economics 101 or economics mm-hmm. 101 that maybe it was 415. The point is a 400 level econ class. They said, at the end of the day, it ain't about guns and butter. It ain't about uh, supply and demand curves. Economics is about human decision making. And once mm-hmm. I took me to the 400 level to have that simplified down, I'm like, well, son of a bitch, we need to tell more people that that's really what we're talking about here. And what right. you've done, yeah. what you're doing, Paul, is basically saying human decision making. I will right. give you an incentive to make a decision that sequesters carbon and thereby reduces the greenhouse gas emissions in our in our uh, environment. Right. That's that's exactly it. Um, it's the the notion that people if we want to solve the problem of climate change, people need to have a way to make money off of doing so. If they don't, it's not going to happen. And, and I totally agree with the, like the characterization of this is a, it's a large scale coordination problem and a coordination problem around behaviors that won't have impacts for many, many, many years down the road. And not only that, but it's, it's from a problem that's created from, again, it's just too much carbon emissions. And, and I, I agree with the other thing you said, like, this is not a morality issue. Uh, carbon emissions are not immoral or, or moral. It, it is totally amoral. They're, like the carbon is not evil. It's just in the wrong location and we need to move it. And it would be better for us all if we were capable of moving it to uh, a, a location in our ecosystem that was not in the upper atmosphere. And uh, the, the idea of what we're trying to do here is, if we can uh, make it so that it becomes more and more profitable over time for people to pull carbon out of the air, more people are going to do it. And they're going to come up with new and better and more efficient ways of pulling carbon out of the air. I don't know what is going to be the most popular widespread dominant market share method of removal in 30 years. Uh, but we, so we should let market forces figure that out. And what Nori is doing is creating this underlying commodities market that makes it possible for this to form on top. We're, uh, a, a toolbox of different tools. Uh, we're not doing the removal ourselves because many other people are doing that. Um, let's talk about, uh, because we, we have, the point is we're really, it's, it's a great subject, but, what you're really talking about, because let's go back to the business. Remember, the person listening mm-hmm. to this might run their own business. They might have 100 employees. They might have one employee. Sure. They might be self-employed. Might be in the gig economy. Might be, uh, you, you know, whatever. Might be aspiring to start their own business. You, let's go to the very basics. You uh, said, I think I can start a company that looks to solve this problem. Problem being yeah. carbon. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to do it by removal. And we're going to then, it's going to be capitalism. It's not going to be guilt. It's not going to be like you said, evil or moral or immoral or whatever. And then you said, all right, I think that there's, there's a way to do this. You're not an agricultural guy. You Nori operates a lot now in the agricultural space, which is why you're sponsoring my business of agriculture podcast, because you want farmers who have to make a few amendments to their practices, um, thereby by making a few amendments to their practices, meaning cultivation, non-cultivation, cover crops, things like that. Then they're sequestering more carbon. And you say, if you'll do that and sign up through our platform, Nori, I'm going to bring you money. Who brings mm-hmm. the money? I know, but I don't want our listeners to know. Where's that money come from? You go back yeah, and print so- it, go back and print it back in the in the in the lounge. Um, not exactly. Although we can talk about cryptocurrency uh, after this because that does come up. Um, we are selling. So we've been around for five years. We started selling carbon for the first time in late 2019. 
And we've sold about 86,000 tons so far. And it's been about $1.3 million paid out to farmers uh, so far. 1.3 million. Yeah. And then that money came from who? Uh, we sell to a mix of some individuals, but I don't think that that's that big of a customer segment. Um, mostly small and medium sized businesses, uh, and in particular, uh, small and medium businesses who have never bought carbon before. And then, uh, we also sell about 25% of our customers are coming from the crypto blockchain web three space. So NFT marketplaces, other blockchains, um, different uh, blockchain based games. What's the NFT marketplace? NFT stands for non-fungible token. And um, it a non-fungible token means it is like, like, you know, if I were to send you a photo, uh, like over email or text or something, and then you make a copy of that and then you send that to someone else, like there's, there's no way for anyone to determine like what is the original of that photo in the same way. Like if we, um, you know, in museums, like it's, it's important that the museum identifies that a particular painting or something is like the unique original because that's sure. what gives it its value. Right. Uh, a non-fungible token is a way of using blockchain and cryptocurrency to prove that a digital file is actually uh, unique. It's like, uh, like time stamped or, or however you want to think about it. It's gotten an ID number. Um, it is, it is unique. And so NFTs have been used popularly, uh, most recently for buying and selling art, but also there are other applications around, um, uh, games, uh, around, uh, different um, like property ownership stuff, maybe like title records, uh, concert tickets, whatever. And it actually, what we do at Nori is when we sell carbon to a buyer, we record it as an NFT. So we make an NFT that bundles up all of the data about the carbon that was removed, who did the removal, when it happened, where it happened, how it was measured and verified and so on. And then that gets sold to these customers and then they own it forever. And it's provable on the blockchain because it's this forever public ledger. Yeah, I like it. So um, $1.3 million and that's since 2017. Now, 2019. I'm sorry, 2019. Founded in 2017, you began selling products in 2019. Okay. We're recording this right now for the listener that's just, who knows when they're going to be checking this out. It's spring of 2022. Um, no offense, $1.3 million ain't a whole hell of a lot of money when you're talking about a company that's been around for five years and really started selling stuff three years ago. So mm-hmm. I assume there's a growth plan. But in yes. the meantime, you're operating at a loss. Just talk about the business side of that. We'll get back to the mm. product and the customers. And all yeah. right now you're operating at a loss. And, yeah. you know, a lot of startups are, a lot of startups do. And uh, tell me sure. about what that's like. Yeah, we're a venture-backed company. So um, we're operating on venture money. Um, when we started in 2017, we had seven co-founders. Uh, which is a, a very high number of people. And we were self-funded and bootstrapped for the first year and a half, two years of our operations. You were self-funded and when you started out and the founders being you and one other person, two other six, people? Six, six other people. S- seven of you? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, you seem like a smart kid, but did they never tell you that when you have seven partners you're going to have all kinds of, you know, seven was cute when it was the dwarfs and a Walt Disney movie, but when seven mm-hmm. people are making decisions, oh, it's going to be a bad time in the boardroom. Did they never tell yeah. you that in business school? Uh, many people have told me this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How's it going so far on the seven people? Um, uh, four of us are still at the company. Um, three have departed for various reasons. 
Um, but I don't think we could have started without all of us uh -huh. uh, because what we're doing is so deeply complex. We are touching uh, several different industries simultaneously, and we're basically trying to build a global commodities market from scratch. And when we first started, no, um, we, we actually wanted to fundraise by selling tokens, um, cryptocurrency in the same way that people were doing so in 2017. Mm -hmm. But then eventually like regulations became more clear and it, it, it sort of uh, became obvious that we couldn't do that in a legal way. So we didn't do it. But the idea originally was, okay, we're going to have seven people. This is a complex topic. We, I want basically, I, I can't afford to pay salaries for six other people. So let's have them all as co-founders and then we'll go fundraise really fast. And then we'll be able to grow the team from there. We, we ended up having to take an entirely different plan and approach to it. Um, we did, uh, we did an angel round basically in 2018 and, and 2019. And then we raised our first, uh, big venture round, our seed round in August of 2020. And then we raised our series a in October of 2021. Um, the thing I, I guess like Originally, I also was sort of opposed to the notion of uh, VC capital uh, because part of the reason that I wanted to run a business is because I don't like working for other people, yeah. and uh, I didn't I didn't want to lose control of how our companies run. Um, okay. But oh, I actually well, have learned a lot. Um, in in this book, uh, it's now yeah. three, now three years old. It's geared to uh -huh. it's geared to small biz and and whatnot. I talk about money in here. I have a I have an entire chapter that says no money or you'll have no money. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's uh, page one thirty five. And I talk about the various ways of getting funding from using your credit card to your savings on hand to going and banging on your grandma's door and and playing uh, the little grandkid to uh, going to the bank, to uh, selling shares of stock and ownership, and also then to venture capital. Um, so yeah. you spoke about a few things that frankly might be over the head of a few uh, people that are a little bit new to this. So talk yeah. about, when you talk about series A's and B's and all that, just kind of uh -huh. real quickly, you, you said you and six people start this thing and you're mm -hmm. putting your own money and your own time up and you got this idea. And then you say, all right, now we've got an actual company. We still don't have much in the way of revenue, but it's time to grow. We think we have a good concept. We're gonna get somebody to invest in this. Tell me about going and getting that money. Yeah. You know, one of my, like, I don't know, I still, I still sort of feel this way, but it's a complaint of mine that the cultural expectation for startup founders is, especially for the CEO, is that you have to be both a good manager to like run the business and a good salesperson effectively in order to fundraise. I am, uh, I think a pretty good manager and not a great salesman. And so the fundraising was very difficult and challenging for me at first. Also because the thing that we're pitching is deeply complicated and it's not as simple as like, Hey, we're building a software as a service business. Here is our financial model. Uh, you plug in these various inputs and out comes your return. Easy to calculate. You're going to make a lot of money off of it. So like, that's not how this works. So I actually ended up working with a fundraising coach uh, for uh, about a year um, to help me with just like how, literally the skills of um, I need to build a funnel and for the investors that I want to talk to. And I need to figure out what are my introduction paths to each of them going to be? How, 
how do I talk to them? How do I get them excited and hooked on the narrative of what I'm trying to sell? Um, how do I uh, close the round and go through like the legal documentation and all of that kind of stuff? So Paul, you've um, seen the 1990 movie with Richard Gere and Julia Roberts called Pretty Woman. When uh, Julia Roberts is okay. a, a hooker and she's working uh, Rodeo Drive or maybe it's uh, Hollywood Boulevard, I think it is. Mm-hmm. And then her her pal, her hooker friend, gives her some coaching on how to score the guy driving the expensive sports car. It's essentially what we're talking about, right? You had to learn how to prostitute yourself and your company. Because, <laughs> uh, I'm being a, a yeah. bit facetious, of course, but first off, you got to make money. You got to get money. Sometimes you got to get money to create the company, et cetera. And you're a salesperson, but also you're like, am I out here horrid? Am I out here horrid to get this thing done? Because the venture capital thing is they kind of, my perception, they like that you have to come around soliciting them, don't they? Well, it just depends on the market conditions. Cause I'll say during our last raise or series A, I started doing that in the summer of last year. That was the best time I could have possibly done that. Like I had a lot of leverage um, just because in fact, something that was really interesting was um, we were oversubscribed, meaning there were more in terms of the amount of money that we wanted to raise and to, and to sell equity in the company, the amount of dilution we were willing to take uh, there was more interest from uh, VCs funds than we could make room for. And so that impacted the valuation of the company, which increased it. And that was happening across the board in for many, many startups in the tech. Because there was just a lot of money floating around out there. There was a lot of money looking for somewhere to go and that's the conditions that were a year or two ago. I mm-hmm. get the impression it's not necessarily that way moving forward in 2022, right? No, no, it is. Uh, it's definitely different now. Okay. Um, which means they'll be backing off of investing in riskier, earlier stage things, unless they're a seed fund. And that's what they specifically focus on. Oh, next question for you about the business. You, you do now have revenue. You do now have customers. You do now have a template. You've been doing this for five years. You've been actually getting money uh, and, and acres and carbon yeah. removals done for a few mm-hmm. years. Is it easier for you to make, to raise money now? Certainly it surely to God should be right. Each time has been easier. Yeah. Um, because more of it has been de-risked. There's more evidence for uh, that we're more likely to actually achieve our vision. Um, so yeah, it does tend to get easier over time. All right, now we're talking vision. Uh, it's one of the four traits of entrepreneurial success that I've always talked about. I think you got to have risk tolerance. You've got to have uh, drive. You've got to have vision and you've got to have fortitude or the ability to get up off that canvas after you get knocked down. I think those are the four things, period. You just talked about vision. Let's talk about that one in particular. What was the vision and who had it? All seven of you didn't have it. There's no way all seven of you had (laughs) it. And all seven of you might have had an idea, but all seven of you did not have a vision. Who had the vision? You? That was me. Um, my first co-founder, uh, a guy named Christoph, and I had known each other for a couple of years in the carbon removal space. And um, he gave me a call in the summer of 2017 to wish me a happy birthday. And uh, as we were catching up, 
he was telling me about what he, he had left his job. And I was like, well, I just kind of left my job. I'm just focusing on crypto stuff right now. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I've been looking at blockchain too. And I was like, oh, really? Say more. So then he decided to come out to Seattle uh, from New York and uh, spend a couple of weeks with me. And we would just see what we see how well we work together and whether we wanted to do this. And so when he arrived, uh, like literally the first day I had, I had already drawn up like uh, a, a visual model of how I wanted this, how this marketplace should work. And um, that's basically what we're still doing today. So the, the model is we should be a marketplace in the middle that makes it really easy for people to sell the carbon that they remove. So they don't have to go out and find buyers themselves. And this similarly for the demand side, buyers should just be able to have inventory that they purchase off the shelf rather than having to work with all these consultants and brokers to find and source offset projects and do all their diligence. It's like so much expensive, time-consuming work. Let's get rid of that for both of them and just connect them in the middle. And then we've got verifiers coming in underneath. And there was a, a as I kind of alluded to, there is a cryptocurrency model that underpins this whole thing to actually create that specific financial incentive. So I had been thinking about that stuff for like, a, I mean, I got into Bitcoin in 2011. And so I was always involved in crypto, but like for this specific application, I've been thinking about it for like almost a year by that point. All right. Vision, who had it? You had it. And then, well, how do you, how did you communicate to the others? Cause some people will never have it. Some people you could paint it and, and make them sit and face the wall with the vision painted on the wall and they'll still not get it. Am I right? Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, yes. I mean, that's actually, you're describing many investors, <laughs> uh, frankly. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, One time uh, I read something, I read something cause I came from kind of a ag then corporate then showbiz background. And I, I read a showbiz book. I've tried to read a lot of different things to apply mm -hmm. different aspects of my experience to, you know, business, right? You know, so it's like, if all you ever read is one thing, you're, you're going to be, you know, biased or, or stupid. Because yeah. you don't know. Yeah. There's a showbiz kind of a, a book about success in showbiz. And I thought it was an interesting point. The one guy, I don't even know who the hell it was, said, um, don't worry about having your brilliant cutting edge ideas stolen from you. Oh, yeah. He said, if it's a brilliant cutting idea, uh, cutting edge idea, you'll probably have to cram it down a million people's throats before anyone will ever actually accept it because they don't, the world doesn't do cutting edge and brilliant. I thought that is so dead on that yeah. <laughs> you just said about investors. They, they don't have vision. They don't have cutting edge. They don't have brilliant a lot of times. All they have is some money and you're out there saying, here's this concept. Here's this vision. Yeah. I don't get it. I don't get it. So I thought that, was, I mean, you can use that by the way, Paul, don't worry about your cutting edge, brilliant ideas being stolen. Yeah. If it's cutting edge and brilliant, you'll probably have to shove it down their throat. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, to be honest, like a lot of people who work as investors are doing so because they, they can't cut it as entrepreneurs. So when, when you do find the, the smart, uh, vision oriented investors who can uh, come along for the ride. Like that is solid gold. And I feel like such deep loyalty uh, and, and respect for our, the investors who have backed us and like what we've been through and worked on together. And so I, just briefly, I will say the, because initially I had this like anti VC sort of mindset. And then we finally took on VC just because we needed to grow. And that I, I so wish I had done it sooner. Um, it has been enormously helpful to have their resources. It's not just their money. It's their business acumen and experience. Yeah. And I, I genuinely look forward to our board meetings. They're very useful. Um, so uh, that, that's just been my experience. But we're also very like 
picky about who we want to work with there. Well, remember, as I as I've talked about in my book, also uh, there's a reason that uh, many times folks that have been burned by their by their investors call venture capitalists vulture capitalists. Um, right. All right, so talk to me about running the business um, and talk about those other traits right there. I said uh, vision was one of them, risk tolerance, uh, drive. <laughs> you, you, you know, if you don't get off your ass, if you don't get off your ass and do it, it ain't going to happen. And of course, we're yeah. I always said that probably I'm not sure I'm risk tolerant as much as I once was, because once you get to where you have something, you, you get yeah. a little protected. You protect it. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm 19 years older than you. And you'll probably be there, frankly, also when you're uh, yeah. you know, 20 years down the road. Um, but I can say about resilience. I, I'd say that that's the one thing that I've um, my wife actually said to me going through all these last couple of years, you know, my God, I, you know, a significant amount of my revenue is speaking at conferences. Well, there were no conferences. And then yeah. uh, a few other aspects of our business got rocked. And then the next thing and invented the next thing. And, then, and Lori said something really complimentary. She says, um, you know what I mean? I swear they, they will knock you down, but they will never knock you out. And I'm like, that's, that's the way mm-hmm. I think that's probably my key. What's your, what's your key? What's your thing? Now, granted, I've got a couple more decades of, of battles, uh, yeah, I've been through yeah. a couple more wars, Right now at age 33, which you told me is what your age is, um, what's your thing? Uh, vision? Is it risk tolerance? Is it uh, drive and initiative or is it resilience? I think I'm probably a generalist split amongst all those. Well, I, wait a minute. No, nobody's 100%. You want me to choose? I have to choose? Which, which ones? Which ones you, give, it, give it your ranking. Give it your ranking. One, two, three. And four. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Uh, which one's your strength among strengths? Uh, vision is the number one thing okay. for me. I, I grew up reading a lot of science fiction. I like thinking about systems. I mean, I studied engineering, um, in particular computer systems engineering. So I like thinking about like the bigger picture stuff, what things, what could be out there. What? Yeah. Yeah. Out. Yeah. I there's, there's so much in the world that I look at and think like, it shouldn't work that way. It should work this other way. And, and then it's like, okay, it should work this other way. So then work backwards. How do we get to that point? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really what we're doing with Dory. All right. Number one is vision. Number two, risk tolerance, drive, uh, resilience, uh, drive. Um, you're, 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 wait a minute. You're a long haired millennial in Seattle. Surely you just sit around and drink coffee all day. What do you mean drive? You, you don't, you don't know what work is, right? I have ADHD and I can't like my mind cannot stop. Um, I, and this is, is drive. And in that, um, my, my first jobs were as project and product managers working in software, building mobile apps for uh, big clients. And, um, I, I was very, uh, interested in, uh, agile software development, which is, um, a strain of type of project management, which is much more focused on adapting to change over time rather than coming up with your big grand plan and like sticking to it and then working nights and weekends when you're running behind schedule and all that stuff. So I have always had more of a a mindset that like, of course, Nori is going to work. It's going to work because we're just going to adapt to everything that comes up. Uh, we have our vision and our plan. So we're not like lacking that, but uh, whatever gets thrown at us, we'll figure out because we have the skill set to figure it out. I think that's far more important than the plan itself. I want to talk to you real quick while we're talking, since we ranked them and you said drive initiative, you know, work ethic, whatever you want to call it. And, and I always yeah. say there's no such thing as a work ethic gene, you know, it, it's it, yeah. you, you, you've, you've, you're driven to do something. 
there's probably stuff that you do. I was joking, of course, about your uh, being a long haired millennial that sips coffee in Seattle. And, you know, that. I do do that, though. Yeah, sure you do. Of course, <laughs> um, there's probably some stuff you do that's work that the average person doesn't get it. That's work. You know, I, uh, yeah. my, bro- my brother, the farmer actually was complimentary of my business. Cause he's like, some of these farm people out here in our neighborhood, they, they judge you. They don't think what you do is work. And I'm like, well, they can think that, but you know, uh, I used to beat the road 180 days a year. And, you know, when I was a comedy act, I used to sit in my hotel room and break down tape and tape is what we used to record stuff with, uh, Paul before yeah, you, yeah, before yeah, you were yeah. born. Anyway, there's a lot of stuff that you probably do that don't look like work or somebody doesn't think is work. It's work, right? Work's work, right? Yeah. For me, it's mostly reading. I, I am constantly reading. Uh, if I, uh, have downtime anywhere, I'm reading articles, research papers, books. I listen to a lot of audio books so that I can listen to them at like two X speed and get through them faster. So I can get onto the next one. Um, I'm just fascinated by so many things in the world and they're all relevant. In, diff- in their own way. And it's the thing that I, I should read and write more, which is interesting. I already do read and write more than most people. And I should do it more because I, I agree with you that it's one of those things that it is work and also makes you, um, makes you, makes you, makes you stress. Like going to the gym. I look at, you know, yeah, it's like, yes. Uh, it's actually what I do. I do go to the gym while I'm listening to audio. Sure, right. And, yeah. Um, uh-huh. The other two that I talked about, just cause I think this is fun for the other people that are listening to this are like, oh, okay, I wonder how I'd rate my four. So we haven't got uh, resilience and, um, and risk tolerance, which one is your third and which one is your fourth? See those two I'm thinking about in kind of the same way, because we, we went like 18, 18 straight months with only having one month of runway. Mm-hmm. And, and then personally, I, so the way that I helped what, fund explain that to the person that's like going, wait a minute, I'm, I'm thinking about starting a business. That's why I do yeah. here. One month of runway means you, you might've the whole Nori might've folded 30 yeah. days from now, if things yes. didn't go right. And yes. then you got to that 30 day mark. It's like, Oh, great, man. Whew. We're good for another 30 days. You went for a year and a half of essentially yeah. saying, if, if this thing don't turn in the next month, we're probably going to be uh, locking up shop. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Several times we got down to less than $10,000 in the bank. And I have one important, like my most important job, like the, if you were to uh, boil it all down for a CEO, your one job is don't run out of money. <laughs> Everything else follows from that. That is the, the single most important thing you can do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I have this, one of our advisors, um, one of the, the, the first advisor we brought on actually, um, I was talking to him about this, uh, and he's, um, just a, a very experienced businessman, um, lots of technology companies, um, from the same era as he, in fact, he told me a story about being in college and Steve jobs and Steve Wozniak showing up at his door, uh, trying to sell him one of their, um, uh, blue box things that they use to bypass like international, uh, uh, phone fees. Anyway. Um, and he was telling me a story about, you know, I've been there so many times and I, and then like, you know, I would get a call out of the blue with a new $50,000 contract and then we'd stay alive and I'd be able to make payroll and yeah. just like right. trust in that. And that was really what got me through a lot of that because not only were we, um, barely, uh, staying alive for quite a while, yeah. I had a personal tax debt 
to the IRS because I had done a lot of uh, cryptocurrency trading in 2017. And the profits from that were what were funding the company for the first year and a half. Right. But when it came time to pay taxes, the market crashed and that money wasn't there anymore. And I hadn't set money aside. And so uh, I personally had this like thing I was getting, I was, I got a lien on my property from the IRS. So I, I was dealing with all of that simultaneously, not sure if the company would work, but like, ultimately, I mean, I believed in my heart, like this, like, of course this, this has to work. This is, this is uh, inevitable. And it's now just on me to like, continue to push through and find a way to stay alive. And that's what we did. Yeah. It's an interesting thing because, um, uh, you don't begrudge people that have normal jobs or even those with government jobs that like think that they're stressed. I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let me tell you what it's, let me tell you what it's like uh -huh. when you look at, when you look at over the next 12 months and you don't have any revenue or you've got, you've got such poultry revenue that you truly think that's almost insignificant. It's such a small amount. It's almost, yeah. I, I, I mean, any of us that have piloted our own ship for long enough have, have been in those situations. Um, Let's talk because I don't want to take take up all your time here. Um, where does it go? Where does Nori go? What? Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm not talking. I know that there's the well, we're going to get to this point, and then we're going to get bought out, and I'm going to 15 times my money. That's all cool, but you don't strike me as the person that's only about I want to 15 times my money or whatever. Where does it go? What happens? Well, first off, I'll say I would sooner cut off my right arm than take a company public. I would just never, ever consider doing that. And um, I, we have no desire to be acquired. Uh, be because careful about that assessment, by the way. My father, my father only had one arm, and he might actually quibble with uh, things that you would and would not do to, uh, without an arm. But yes, uh, it, it was his left, by the way, that was amputated. Recently. Well, I'll just say that I would uh, agree you with you. You're going to lay on a bed of never... nails and get driven over by a Mack truck and go, uh, go public. But that's where all, all, a lot of these things end up going. And it doesn't sound like that's something that's interesting to you at all. No. No, our mission is to restore the atmospheric carbon balance back to what it was before the industrial revolution. And we're not stopping until we get there. So um, what can we want rich, can you get rich doing that? Absolutely. Okay. Um, and that's where the cryptocurrency part comes in. Um, uh, that is our sort of um, liquidity path. Um, and the, the objective is for uh, the Nori token that we are creating, where one token can purchase one ton of CO2. Uh, the objective is for that to become the reference price for carbon as viewed by the international markets. Okay. So in the same way, if, if you want to know the price of oil today, you go look at Brent crude or WTI. Uh, we don't have such a thing for carbon and that's right. what our, that's what our goal is. Yeah. Right. Um, so now, right now the problem with carbon is that it's a very, it's, it's the wild West. It still is undefined. It's, it's very, very opaque. arbitrary. There's a bunch yes. of different people playing in it. It's kind of like, you know, there's a, some of these companies that are in carbon now are going to be like MySpace. It's like, who the hell, what are you talking about? Who are yeah. they? You know? right. So that's, it's, that's, that's that. So you're going to be a player. You want to stay around. So one of your big things, when you look down the road is you want to be here. Uh, you want to revolutionize some of this and you also don't want to be a publicly traded company. That's right. Yeah. In the same way that Elon talks about SpaceX, like they've like their mission is to colonize Mars. And uh, if they were to go public, they would be subjects to such short-sighted thinking that they would never really achieve those goals. And that's how we feel too. All right. We'll give you a couple more things here on the way out the door. Uh, a question I love to ask uh, entrepreneurs. If I gave you four more hours a week, I just pulled it out of the, atmosphere and just gave it to you. You get four more hours. Nobody else gets those four hours. 
You get four more hours. What do you do with those four hours? Sleep more. Okay. And, and when, by the way, when you're in your 40s and 50s, you might be doing that, and then you'll be something else you want to do. Uh, and uh-huh. then what did we not discuss about your entrepreneurial journey that you think any person that runs their own business, has run a business, wants to run a business, has their own self-employed gig, it works in the gig economy, maybe has 100 mm-hmm. employees. What one thing do you think in your five years really is what we're talking for you, right? You quit your job about five years ago. What's the one thing in your five years? Five years, by the way, is long enough that you've learned a hell of a lot. <laughs> you know, five, five weeks, and yeah, five years, you've learned a lot. What's the one thing you want to leave them with? Hold strong opinions loosely. Be confident in your convictions of what it is that you are trying to do, but be very ready to take in new information and new data and change accordingly if necessary. Um, Because as the world gets ever more complex, technology grows, the market shift. uh, I mean, just look at the last few years. It's just insane craziness. Um, You have to be able to adapt to change. And this goes back to the agile stuff. Like one of the um, uh, agile principles is responding to change over adhering to a a fixed plan. Uh, That's the most important thing that I, it it like, it guides every aspect of my life. Um, And it's, it's what has kept us alive during those difficult times. Well, then I have to ask, I'm sorry, I told you it was the last one. It's really, you're talking about adaptability. One of my big things, mm-hmm. and, and some folks don't like it, I opened my book by talking about it, in fact, that uh, I was a host, a guest host presenter, if you will, at a high school entrepreneur class, and they mm-hmm. want to know what the what I thought the most important thing to say. So I said, all right, I'll answer that, but I want to hear your answers first. We went around the room, and they all said, a, a solid, a well-documented business plan. And then mm-hmm. they got to me, and I said, I've never had one. Now, granted, I don't, run, I don't run SpaceX, but I can tell you, I'm not sure Elon Musk has a formal documented business plan either because- I don't even know what it is, frankly. You're supposed to chart, you're supposed to chart all five and seven and 10 years out. And I'm like, yeah. you realize the pace of change? We didn't have Uber five years ago. And I'm supposed to tell yeah. you what it's my little fiction. company- So I would say that that is somewhat of a preposterous- um, uh, notion that you have to have a for it. So you just cemented it. Uh, hold yeah. your strong convictions loosely because what we're really talking about is the ability to adapt. And I think that's mm-hmm. when business plans are too rigid and they don't allow for adaptability. Yeah. And that's, and going, going back to like the importance of reading, um, that's how you learn and take in new information and be willing to, you know, question your own assumptions and then improve them and iterate on them. Uh, Cause that makes you stronger. Right. His name is Paul Gamble, and uh, I'm going to have him back because uh, if he enjoyed the conversation as much as I did, maybe he'll be willing to come back. We can talk about some other things as this mm, evolves. Uh, the company's called Nori, N-O-R-I. If you want to learn more about what he's doing or catch up with him, uh, where do we go? Nori.com? Nori.com, and then you can find me on Twitter at, at Paul Gamble, P-A-U-L-G-A-M-B-I-L-L. At Paul Gamble. I'm going to follow you right now. I appreciate you being here. There's two L's at the end of Gamble, right? That's right. To us. That's right. Gam Bill. All right. His name is Paul Gamble. My name is Damian Mason. This is the Do Business Better podcast where you can learn all about entrepreneurialism stuff because we talk to cool people that have done it and you're just talking to one of them. And uh, I really appreciate you being here, by the way. Yeah. Thanks, Damian. This is fun. All right. Till next time. Thanks for being here. Check out all my past episodes. Go to the Damian Mason channel on YouTube or go to SoundCloud, go to uh, iTunes, go wherever you get your podcast. You know what? Share it with a friend because there's really cool information here. And the more people that hear it, the more people can benefit. Till next time, I'm Damian Mason. 
If you enjoyed this episode of Do Business Better, please share it. And be sure to connect with Damien on LinkedIn, like his Facebook fan page, and follow him on Instagram and Twitter. For speaking inquiries or to purchase Damien's books, Food Fear and Do Business Better, go to DamienMason.com. Know someone who'd make a great guest? Send us a message. We're always looking for compelling stories and business lessons our listeners can benefit from. Thank you. Thank you.